How does one avoid being deceived by false Christ? That's a good question. I just, what was it, uh, two nights ago we talked about Matthew 24 and... Uh, I'm going to stand over here so I don't like get that the screen. Better? Okay. No. Uh, two nights ago we talked about Matthew 24 and Jesus mentioned that there were going to be lots of false Christs. Okay, so if there's going to be false Christs, how do we know what Christ. to look for? And uh, it's on Sunday, this coming Sunday, we're talking about the second coming, the appearing. And it's on that night that we're going to discuss how to, um, how to know what the appearing of Jesus, what the second coming of Jesus is going to really be like. I'm going to give you five concrete biblical points that you can say, yep, that's, what, that's going to be a component of Jesus' second coming. Um, so I don't want to get too much into detail of this because you're kind of comparing the second coming of Jesus with uh, false Christs. But I'll tell you what we'll do. Uh, if you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24, um, Matthew 24 is the same place that Jesus brings up the false Christ issue. And right there in verses 23 to 27, he answers his own question, or the question that, that this, um, this question that was brought up. And he begins this, this way. If anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the, elect, the very elect. And verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, and whenever you see a therefore, you got to ask, what's it there for? Have you heard that one before? <laughs> um, so he's got a problem. There's going to be false Christs. I, I, I've told you beforehand, therefore, here's what I want you to pay attention to. All right, so therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or if he says to you, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So what he's saying, Wayne, is that my coming is going to be like lightning. And if you see somebody out in the desert or somebody on TV or somebody in some meeting hall and it doesn't look like lightning bursting the sky, then don't believe it. So that's at least one really simple way of knowing if it's Christ or a false Christ. If they don't look like lightning flashing across the sky, it ain't Christ. It's really hard to miss lightning. <laughs> it kind of is. Yeah, I agree. It kind of is. Okay, what's the other question? Our second question, Christians say that Jesus is God in human flesh, but does the Bible really support that claim? This is a good question, and it's one that, that uh, theologians have struggled with. Now, I should say that Christianity as a whole has said, absolutely, yes, Jesus is the Messiah, and He is God. And, and so there's been a lot of consistency in the Christian denomination, uh, Christian denominations of all stripes. Uh, but let me give you some Bible uh, things. The Bible needs to be the one that tells us what truth is, not just tradition of the church. Amen. So um, you can sit down if you want to. Um, we're done with the, this will be the last question. But okay, so uh, many, many times in the Bible, we have this uh, statements that connect Jesus with divinity, with God himself. And so I want to give you just one example of that. And since we're studying Revelation, Revelation seems like a good place to go. Revelation chapter 1 and verses 10 and 11. John, he's, he's there. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, 
I am Alpha and Omega, the first and last. And then he goes on and he says, this is a message to the churches. Um, and this, this first and last title that uh, the person here, who, who is Jesus, it's pretty clear it's Jesus in Revelation, um, the, the title here is something he claims for himself, the first and the last. And you'll find this a few different places. Uh, for instance, Revelation 1, 17 and 18, just a few verses later, he says it again, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Um, and the story of Jesus, you know that he died on a cross, and yet he was made alive again. Um, just a, a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter, the resurrection of Jesus, um, and the memory of that. So, the, he, I am he who was dead and came to life. But he claims this title, I am the first and the last. And then if you go to the last chapter of Revelation, just a few pages farther, chapter 22, and you read verses 12 and 13, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. So Jesus points to his return, and he says, My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. So this is a consistent title that Jesus gives himself, something that's very important to him. And the question is, where does he get the title from? So if you want to find that, you need to go back to Isaiah. Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, it's very clear that God is talking. And, and this, if you, if you read in your Bible and you see the, the, the capital letters L-O-R-D, um, we're not talking about um, the Lord of a mansion, you know, some guy who has charge of, of servants or something like that. We're not talking about a boss. We're talking about a title for God. And that word Lord is, is really the Hebrew word Yahweh or the English transliteration of that Jehovah. This is the God of heaven, the creator God, right? The God that has authority over all, all creation. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, right? This is the Lord talking. And he, and he says this in Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. So when you see Jesus saying, I am the first and the last in Revelation, and you know Jesus knows Isaiah, he's either doing one of two things. He's either claiming the title of God because he is God, or he is a terrible deceiver. I'm going to say it's the first. Jesus claims he's God because he has all of the, of the authority to claim he is God. He is divine. And uh, now there's lots and lots and lots of things that you can point to, really cool things from the Old Testament that are in the New Testament. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am, right? That word I am is the phrase that was on the mountain when Moses stood there in front of a burning bush. And in that, on that, in that moment, he says, what should I call you? And God says from the burning bush, I am that I am. The, the self-existent one is essentially what he's saying, but I am. And so Jesus says, I am in the New Testament. In, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had God leading them in a pillar of fire. Absolutely no question that it's God's presence in the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke that, that go over the tabernacle and lead them through the wilderness. And Jesus in the New Testament, uh, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is that pillar of fire that led them in the wilderness. Jesus himself said, I am the light of the world. 
So there, there's, uh, there's no ambiguity in the Bible about it. Jesus is absolutely the Son of Man, Mary's Son, and absolutely God Himself, co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. So that's, that's the Bible story, and to really get that, you need to read the whole Bible. And when we cherry-pick here and there, we end up with confusion. So, um, all right, that's, we could dive into more and more of that, but we'll, we'll leave it as uh, uh, for that right now. Tonight, we're talking about the man of Revelation. I think one of the most exciting presentations um, in the book of Revelation. I think it's going to be uh, really interesting for you, um, and it's the foundation. Without this, nothing else in prophecy makes sense. And then tomorrow night, not sorry, tomorrow night we're not going to meet, or Wednesday night, but Thursday night we're going to meet again, right here, 7 o'clock, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And we're going to look at Revelation chapter 6. So tonight is 4 and 5, to, uh, Thursday night, the next time we meet is 6, and we're going to explore these four horsemen. But a lot of people, they look at the first few verses, and they come up with all kinds of interesting ideas. Uh, back in the late 20th century, 1980s, 1990s, there are lots of movies and books about the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, unfortunately, they, they, they didn't read the whole chapter. I mean, just read a few more verses, and what they're saying in those books and movies just doesn't make any sense. So we want the Bible to speak for itself, and we're going to explore the entire chapter on Thursday night in detail, and I think that's going to be a, real, a good experience. So Friday night, we're going to start the, the, the most epic prophecy in all of the Bible, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we're going to see some stuff. We, we already talked about Matthew 24 and the end of time kind of scenario, but on Friday night, we're going to really nail some of those things down and find out what the Bible says about the nearness of the second coming. And, um, and when we do that, um, we'll, uh, we'll explore this, uh, this prophecy that is so big, we can't do it in one night. And so we're going to do it again on Saturday night, where we're going to take the principles we learned on Friday night and apply them to this prophecy, and I think it's going to make a lot of sense, and you're going to walk away and say, this is exciting stuff. Revelation is a book of hope. So then on Sunday night, we're talking about the second coming, and we're going to look at things like the rapture, and what does that mean, and what does the Bible say about the identifying things that can tell us this is actually Jesus' second coming and not some fraud. Um, and there's it doesn't need to be ambiguous or, or, or um, you know, like a lot of different opinions about the subject. The Bible is, is pretty clear. And so I'm going to give you five things that are clearly in the Bible, concrete things that you can take home with you and say, these are part of the second coming of Jesus. And, and it, if it's not including these five things, then it can't be um, correct because this is what the Bible says. So then on Monday night, we're not going to meet. But on Tuesday night next week, we're going to talk about um, one of the central chapters in the book of Revelation, and a subject I'm calling the anatomy of evil. So Revelation chapter 12 has some fascinating subjects. You get dragons, and, and there's uh, this mysterious woman that get, comes onto the scene. And, and so we're going to get to uncover some neat things in Bible prophecy. And, and we're going to let the Bible tell us what the Bible means when it brings up these subjects. Uh, we're not going to guess about any of those things. So that's Tuesday night. Wednesday night, we're going to, um, the, the subject is called the ultimate mind game. And if you want to read ahead, this one's a good one to read ahead from, Revelation 14, the first five or so verses is what we're going to be focusing on. And um, the, the Bible has a lot to say about the forehead in prophecy. And, and so we're going to look at that. What does it mean when it talks about the forehead? 
And it's going to be an interesting concept on that night. And then um, we're going to dig into some heavier prophecy on Friday night. Um, that call, the, the subject is called The Coming of the Lawless One. Um, Paul, in a letter to the Thessalonians, writes about some apostasy that began at his time but kind of grew until the church, um, well, uh, somebody in the church decided that they were God. That this is what Paul predicts anyway, that somebody in the church would decide that they were God and would stand in the place of God and, and would do away with laws. And, and so he calls it the lawless one. Um, and we're going to explore that prophecy, and it's going to connect with especially Revelation 13, um, which we're going to get to on another night. So uh, you won't want to miss Friday night next week either. But tonight, um, we're going to talk about the man of Revelation. And, uh, and we're going to, I talk a lot, um, so we're going to do something a little different tonight. I'm going to share uh, the message with you and tell you what, uh, what's on my heart, but then I'd like you to tell me a little bit about what's on your heart. So we'll, we'll pass out a little card, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to, to talk back to me and tell me if things are connecting. But let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, I, I just want to ask for your Holy Spirit to be here. I know that your word is not something that we can understand without your spirit guiding us, but you've promised that you will give us the spirit to lead us into all truth. And so I pray that you do that for us tonight. And please take my heart, uh, forgive me of my sin, and make me uh, capable of communicating your word in truth and honesty. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you open the Bible to the very, very beginning of the book of Revelation, you look at the very top of that page, what does it say in your Bible? It might say something like the title there, the Revelation of John. Or if you have the old King James Bible, it might say the Revelation of St. John the Divine. <laughs> uh, and, and to be honest, it makes perfect sense because John is a really important figure in the book of, Re of Revelation. He is one of the closest of Jesus' disciples, and he's the only one of the disciples who lives to, um, to his, to, well, who dies of old age, who does not die of martyr's death. And it's not because Rome didn't try. Um, we find in history, not in the Bible, but we find in, in the Christian historical records that a guy named Domitian really hated the Christians, and he's the emperor of Rome, so he gets to do something about it. And he took John, and he decided that he was going to have some, some deep-fried John. He put him in a vat of boiling oil, and John didn't die. And so he take, took him out, and he sent him to an island 45 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, an island called Patmos. And at the time, well, today, there's like 3,000 people living there, but at the time, it was a, a prison uh, camp. And it, it was the kind of people that, well, it seems like we have one of these off the coast of California, don't we? It, Alcatraz, we've got this prison that the, these... Um, people we don't want interacting with the rest of society, and if they get, if they get out and they swim, they're going to die anyway. So, you know, like, put them on that island. And that was kind of the thing that, that happened with John. He gets on this island, and while he's on this island with these um, undesirables, he, um, he, he's praying one day, and he gets these, this vision and, and, and this, uh, the dreams and the visions that make up the book of Revelation start right there on the island of Patmos. So he's a great man. He's close to God. He's an apostle of, 
of Jesus. He's the author of the book. It would make sense that you would put his name right there at the top. Except that's not the title that the Bible gives the book. So let's, let's look at the first verse of the first chapter of Revelation, and let's find out what title the Bible gives it. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. So who does the book of Revelation reveal? Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. And, and notice this. Um, it, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to show him things which must, what's that next word? shortly take place. Uh, you might underline that in the Bible. You see, the Bible is, is trying to communicate to us something. Some people would like us to put revelation and much of, of what's happening there into the far-off distant future. And Jesus, or John here, is saying that that's not the case. Jesus is revealing this for something that would happen very shortly, that, that would begin happening really in John's day, and, that, and, and then proceed on from there. So, um, th this is a key in understanding Revelation. It's not all future tense. There's stuff that's starting even in John's day. All right, so let's, uh, let's dive in. We're going to look at some scenes in Revelation chapter 5, but you need to understand what happens in Revelation 4. In Revelation 4, John is he's there on the island, and God gives him this vision, and it's a singular vision that very few people have been able to see. Um, Isaiah was one of them, uh, but just a, just a couple others were able to see this. And John got an inside view into the throne room of God. That's the view that John has in Revelation chapter 4. And we're going to join him in Revelation chapter 5. Um, as he's exploring this view of the throne and seeing what's there, he says this, and I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written on inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, there's a couple things we need to notice. First of all, sevens. Every time you see the word seven in the Bible, there's probably something to it. Um, John, or not John, one of the disciples comes to Jesus and asks him, how often should I forgive? If somebody does something against me, how often should I forgive? And he's very generous because they said three times, at the, in his culture that day. Three times you forgive somebody and then you're done with them. But John is like, I'm going to do it really well. He says, seven times. Should I forgive seven times? And Jesus is like, no, 70 times seven. <laughs> um, and, and that word seven, it, it's got a significance to it. Think back to Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, and you find that Jesus, the God, um, all, all three persons are represented there right there in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, but that, that, that they are creating the world and they do it in six days, and then the seventh, they rest. And, uh, and then it's like, we're done. That's the end. And ever since then, the Bible has used seven as a sign of completion. Like, this is the whole package. There's no more beyond this. Perfection. That's what seven means. And all through Revelation, you find that there's seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. In chapter 1, there's seven lampstands. There's seven plagues, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven heads, seven crowns, all kinds of sevens in the book of Revelation. So it's a number that we need to pay attention to. And, uh, and that's the first thing you notice. There's seven seals. But the second thing that you notice is this, this word scroll. What's a scroll? 
a book. Yeah, I mean, today we have, we have uh, the pages and they're bound and stuff. But back in John's day, they would take um, vellum, which is like a calf skin, and they would write on that and roll it up uh, on, a, on a wood roll, on a dowel or something, and, and they would store that, and that would last a long time. Or they'd put it on papyrus and, again, roll it up. And, and, um, and they would make these long rolls. They'd stitch them together in the middle, and they'd make a long roll, but at, at some point, they'd get kind of heavy. And so um, that's why we have the five books of Moses. They were really one continuous thing, but they had to put them on five scrolls, and so we call it the Pentateuch, the five scrolls book, the first five books of the Bible. So in this case, God's got a scroll in heaven, and he's got a book, and I think that's an interesting thing. God keeps records. In fact, there's a, um, a verse, it's Second Chronicles 16.9. It says this, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Think about it like this. God is paying attention. He sees everything. Not like Santa, <laughs> who's uh, going to give you good things if you're good and bad things if you're bad. It's not exactly the way he's doing it, but he sees everything. And, it, and then this says, the purpose is to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. His goal is, is to do good for us so that God keeps a record. He's got something in heaven, some kind of a record there. And look in verse 2. It says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? It's an urgent question. And it says, he says it with a loud voice. He's shouting, Who's worthy? Like he wants to find somebody. And, and it's interesting, do angels know everything? Apparently not. There's an angel here saying, who's worthy? And there's a certain sense of, of, of uh, urgency to, the, to this question. It needs to be answered. And he says, who is worthy? And, uh, and what's the answer? In verse 3, it says, no one in heaven or on earth or even under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. Who is worthy? Nobody. Hmm. They couldn't find anybody, not in heaven, not on earth, nowhere. And that's a valuable piece of information, something that, that is essential for us to understand the message that we're about to hear. Nobody is worthy. But keep reading. John, he says, I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Why, why do you think John is weeping you don't, you don't have deep emotion about something unless it's significant to you. You know, you weep when you lose something. You weep when there's something really big in your life. And John weeps. There's something really significant that, that he's crying about. No one's worthy, and it matters to John. It matters to him. And I would suggest that this is the biggest issue that we should be thinking about tonight. The biggest issue in your whole life is this message we're going to talk about right now. And it's the reason that John was weeping. And to be honest with you, it should make us weep too. We're, we're going to find out what it is. But keep reading in verse 5. And he says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. There's, there's hope here, he says. Don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loosen its seven seals. Do you see it? In Revelation, it's always good news. 
It's always something with hope. It's not about destruction. It's about avoiding destruction. It's not about death. It's about conquering death. It's not about hopelessness. It's about finding hope. Revelation is a story of good news. It's, uh, it's the gospel. That's what the word gospel means, is good news. And all throughout Revelation, you've got lots and lots of good news. So, and so he says, don't weep. I got good news. There's a solution for the problem. And then in verse 6, he says, I looked. And, and follow that. Um, he had heard before angels saying um, who's worthy and whatnot, but now he sees. He hears about Jesus or about this lion of the tribe of Judah, and then he sees. He says, I looked, and behold, uh, in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb. And this pattern of hearing and then looking is going to come up a few other times in Revelation. But what is this lamb? Who is this lamb? Who is the one that is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb of God? Notice he sees this lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. There's that number seven again. Who is this lamb? It's Jesus. The Lamb of God, John the Baptist, saw Jesus and pointed to him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that is Jesus. And so who is it? It's Jesus, the one who is dead and is alive forevermore, the one who had been slain but was resurrected. This is the one who's worthy. Somehow, Jesus has conquered something. He's had the victory in some way, a a, a way that no one else can and therefore he is worthy to open these seals. We're going to find out what the seals are on Thursday, because that's the next thing that happens. Revelation 6, he starts opening the seals, and we see the four horsemen. That's going to be a lot of fun. But right now, let's just focus on the lamb, the man of Revelation. We need to answer a few questions. First of all, why did John weep? That's an important question. And then secondly, what exactly did the lamb do to make him worthy of opening this scroll? And, and third, in the book of Revelation, why is Jesus seen as a lamb that is slain? These are three important questions we need to ask and answer from this chapter. So I'm going to give you two stories, and if you don't mind, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to weave them through together. Follow me. I think that they'll make sense as we tell them parallel to each other. Um, but I'm going to first tell you the story of Linda. Um, there we go. Uh, Linda, uh, she uh, went to the, the mailbox one day and she pulled out a letter. It was from the uh, state of Nebraska. And in that letter, she was expecting her birth certificate because um, she was wanting to apply for um, for a what are they called? Passport. She wanted to go on a trip. And so she, she's expecting a birth certificate. She opens this thing up and, and the, the bottom fell out of her world. Because at the top, she read adoptive birth certificate. And, and there's a problem with that because she knew she wasn't adopted. I mean, she thought, well, maybe they make mistakes. You know, there, there's things like this happen all the time, right? Um, but, but there's this nagging feeling inside her that, that she didn't know the whole story, but she knew absolutely that she was not adopted. 
Well, she couldn't call her parents because both of them had died, so she called her uncle. And uh, she says, uncle, um, I got this interesting thing in the mail today, says that, uh, that it's an adoptive birth certificate. Uh, and then there was silence on the other end of the line. And that made her feel like there was actually something to it. And so she said, tell me, I, I deserve to know. I mean, she's 42 years old. She has four children of her own. How can she not know that she's adopted by this time in her life? And her uncle said, well, I promised I would never tell you. But you found out, so yes, you were adopted. She hangs up the phone. She calls her sister. And she says, um, so I got this birth certificate, says I was adopted, uncle says I was adopted, but that can't be right. We're, we're like birth sisters, right? And her sister pauses and says, well, I wasn't supposed to tell you. I promised mom and dad I wouldn't, but yeah, you were adopted. I mean, it was, it was one of those things that just brings up all this emotion inside her, and, and she just felt like she'd been deceived her whole life, that there's this conspiracy. Um, and, and so she went to her room, and she could barely eat. Um, she barely came out. Her, her husband, Mike, finally came to her and said, we need, to, we need to talk about this. This is not the end of your life. You see, there's good news here. Your mom is maybe out there somewhere. Maybe your parents or your real parents are out there somewhere. You should maybe put an, put an ad out and see if somebody will, will answer it. And she's like, no. See, my mom, she wouldn't have given me up if she didn't love me. I mean, she wouldn't have given me up if she loved me. She didn't want me then. Why would she want me now? And Mike said, well, it can't be worse than that. Maybe you could reconnect. And so she started to, to soften to the idea, and she sat down and wrote an ad, and this is what she put in the newspaper. My name is Linda. Oh, and by the way, her sister uh, remembered the, the names of her birth parents and was able to tell her that. So she puts this ad in the newspaper there in, in her town. Uh, my name is Linda, born in, to Je Jeannie and Warren in Omaha, July 8, 1950, and given up for adoption. My adoptive parents are deceased. I do not wish to cause any problems, but I'm seeking available information or possible reunion. And uh, you know what she's asking? You know what this ad is asking? Who am I? The question of identity is the question that all of us have to face at some point or another. If you haven't faced it yet, you will. Everybody faces this question, who am I? And it's, it's the source, this question of identity is the source of all kinds of conflict, especially when you're a young person <laughs> um, and trying to figure out life. Uh, but if you don't know God at all, boy, there's all kinds of different directions you can go trying to self-identify. Who am I? Where do I belong? What's the meaning of my existence? Am I here for a purpose? Is, is there anything worthwhile for my life? Everybody faces those questions. And probably one of the most famous examples of that question is a guy that, uh, that hung on a tree beside Jesus. Back in Luke chapter 22, it tells this story. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. So the Bible says there's somebody hanging on the cross next to Jesus. We 
We call him the thief on the cross. Um, we don't really like to leave somebody there without a name, and so Christians have, have added stories and, and, and theories. They call him um, Dismas, and they say that maybe he was um, a young child with Jesus. At one point, Jesus, he died, and Jesus raised him from the dead, or he helped um, Mary and, and Joseph escape to Egypt, or, you know, there's all kinds of interesting stories about this guy, but we really don't know. We have no idea what his life was about. At the end of his life, the Bible tells us three things about him. He says, it says that he was a thief, that he was a transgressor, that he was a criminal. The King James Version calls him a male factor, which just means that he did evil things. This is, this is not a good thing to have at the end of your life. The only thing that you're known for is bad stuff. Did he have any hobbies? We don't know. Did he have a girlfriend, a wife? We don't know. Did he have brothers or sisters? We don't know. All we know is that he was a transgressor, a thief, an evildoer. Three words to sum it all up. What about your life? What will the word world say about you at the end of your existence? When it's all said and done, we all really just have a few words etched on a gravestone. Maybe a eulogy or an epitaph, something that somebody's willing to write for you in the newspaper um, or say at a funeral. Just a few words to sum up your life. What will people say about you? Chances are you're not even going to see what they say. You're going to be dead. And it's just the world remembering you. That, that's what we end up at the, li at the end of life. And, and the truth is that our life isn't just that. Our life is the sum of all of our decisions and all the things that we say. And according to the Bible, and it's not just the one place we read here um, in, in uh, Revelation 5 where there's a scroll with seals on it. It's not the only place the Bible talks about records in heaven. It also talks about the book of life, which we'll um, come to at some point. Um, but, but there's a record in heaven. God pays attention and he knows exactly who you are. The motives that drive your decisions, the decisions that you've made, the interactions you've had with others, the words that you've said, they're all a record of your existence. What does it say about your life? The character you've built, the options you've chosen, the de decisions you've made, the difference you've made here on earth, these are the record, the sum total of your life. And, and Matthew says that this man was a thief. This is the sum total of his life. Was he a good provider before he got into crime? Was he a good father? We really don't know those things. Because that's not what his life was about. In the end, his life was defined by his bad choices. Now, I want to ask you, oh, and I want to point, point something out. These are two men that the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Israel wanted to hang beside Jesus to make Jesus look even worse. Not only is he hanging on the cross, but he's hanging beside two criminals, two male factors, two evil doers. Now ask yourself a question. If you stood in heaven like John in front of the throne of God and you saw this scroll like John and you heard this question, who is worthy, would you stand up and be like me? I could do that. Are you worthy? Looking at the sum total of your life, are you worthy? 
they couldn't find anybody. And we all know that you and I would not dare step forward. And the reason is because uh, we're not worthy. The Bible says what we're worthy of is death. If that's what we really get, if we get what we deserve, it's death. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, your Lord. And uh, you might think that's harsh. God wouldn't do that unless he was some mean dictator. Um, Well, that's not really exactly how it works. Think about it like this. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. Sin can't dwell in the presence of God. He is holy, and sin, it, it, doesn't, it can't exist in his presence. In 1 John, John says that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And then he compares sin to darkness and says that we've got sin. And if we're darkness, what happens to darkness in the presence of light? It, it, it's demolished, it disappears, it's gone. If you've got sin, if you get to the presence of God, you disappear. There is no life apart from God. Colossians chapter 1 says that God is the only creator and sustainer of all life, which means that every breath you take, you can say, praise God for that breath, <laughs> because it's a gift from God. Now you might say, well, I've sinned and I haven't died, so that that verse might be wrong, but I'd kind of compare it to that fan. I plugged it in just the other day, and uh, then I had to unplug it a few minutes later. And you know what happened to those blades? They kept spinning for a while. And what's happened is God, God had this world plugged into him when it all started. And then, and then we decided that we were going to try to do life on our own, and we separated ourselves from God as a world. And each one of you and each, each one of us, put myself in the same place as you, right? Each one of us has made the same choice to separate ourselves from God. And as a result, we've unplugged ourselves from the source of life. And God allows us to spin a while. But there's going to come a time in each of our lives where we face the exact same thing everybody else has. We are all going to die. That's the reality. The problem is serious. This is a big deal. And so John is standing in front of the the throne of God. He sees this scroll and they, they ask who's worthy and John begins to weep because he knows that this is a life or death situation. If this is not something that's able to be opened, then he has no hope. And so he weeps because he's not worthy and no one else is found worthy. If you think that you're worthy, I want to point a text to you. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, which says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. This is the reality. If you think you're all good, if you think, hey, I've, I've, done, I've done some pretty good things in my life. I'm not that bad of a person. Like, I, I don't need what you're talking about. I, I just want to point out that, that that is a really well-crafted self-deception. It's not the truth. And, and this is the reality I don't believe in conspiracy theories, not the YouTube ones anyway. You can send them to me all day, want, all, all day long if you want, but I'm not going to believe in the YouTube th- conspiracy theories. But there are conspiracies that are real. I want to tell you that. There are real conspiracies. And uh, Romans, well, Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
but, but there's somebody out there that wants to put a veil over our, our eyes and keep us from seeing the truth. And so we do these interesting things like we say, um, well, I'm better than the guy next to me. Look to your left and right. See if you can say that. <laughs> Are you better than the person next to you? Let's just, let's just humor you. I mean, like, first of all, why would you do that? That's not nice. But um, <laughs> secondly, um, even if it's true, let's humor you. Let's, let's uh, see if it might be true. Um, I need a, a volunteer. Maybe I'll pick somebody. Perry, would you come forward? I need a volunteer to help me, and I, I need you to help me swim. You're going to swim with me. Can you be a swimming partner? Well, it's, we don't have any water, so <laughs> that'll be perfect for my, my illustration. So, Perry, you and I, we've, we've worked hard on, uh, on a project. Come, come over here with me. We've worked hard on a project, and, uh, and, and it's been, I don't know, months of hard work. And so we've decided that we need a vacation. But you and I, we don't have money for a ticket to Hawaii. But we really want to go to Hawaii. So we, we find ourselves down in San Francisco, 2,400 miles from the coast of Hawaii, and we decide we're going to swim, okay? okay? Because it's cheaper than flying. Okay, so here we go. Let's, let's start. This is San Francisco, and, and we're going we're gonna to swim, and, uh, and we swim, and we swim 500 miles, 750, 1,000 miles, and, and you get this funny look on your face, and you look at me, and I say, what's wrong, Perry? I'm drowning. <laughs> you say, I got a cramp. I can't swim anymore, and you drown, and you die. You can go sit down. But, but I keep swimming. I'm good. So, you know, 1,200, 1,500, 2,000 miles, 2,100, 2,200, 2,380 miles. I'm just 20 miles from shore and I drown. I, I can't swim any longer and I drown and I die. Is there really any difference between Perry at 1,000 miles and me at 2,380 miles? We both fall short of the glory of God. Put that verse back up there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not one single person can match the glory of God. DJ and I were talking before about this idea, and, uh, and I said it's kind of like a flashlight trying to match the brightness of the sun. There is no hope of that ever working. It just won't happen. And, and that's the reality of our experience. It just doesn't make any sense to compare ourselves with each other because we all fall short of the glory of God. I, I told you I don't believe in conspiracies, but that there is a conspiracy that we're experiencing. And uh, it turns out that uh, this, uh, this girl named Jeannie, she was 17 years old when she got married and her teenage husband and her got pregnant and had Linda. And when Linda was born, the father ran off. And Jeannie had to provide for her family all on her own. She did her best. She got a job there in Omaha, Nebraska. And she met an older couple that was willing to take Linda during, uh, while she was at work. But it, it took her 45 minutes to get there because they lived across town. And 45 minutes to get back to work. An hour and a half each way. I mean, an hour and a half morning and evening was too much for her. And so they, just said, they, they said that they would take her from Sunday night to Friday morning. So she would uh, drop, her, drop Linda off Sunday night, pick her up Friday morning, and, and work in between. And, uh, and so that, that worked for a while. But then one day, 
Jeannie got uh, a call at work, and uh, it was the, the Whitney's, Mr. Whitney called, and he, he said, social services is here, they found out about your child care arrangement, and they said that, that we need to have some paperwork signed, and if we don't get that paperwork signed, then they'll take Linda and, and put her into foster care. And so, almost without telling her boss, Jeannie like, left work and hurried over to the Whitney's house um, and to their apartment that they lived in. And uh, she tried to go through the paperwork. The people that were there said that it was all ordinary, you know, normal stuff or whatever. She didn't understand everything, and she signed the papers. And uh, so then she, um, uh, that, that week she took Linda back. She dropped her off again on Sunday. And the following Friday was Linda's birthday, her second birthday. And she brought her a gift, and was, it was going to be a really special moment for Linda when she got to that house. She knocked on the door, nobody answered. She knocked again, nobody answered. This didn't happen, they knew she was coming, and so she banged on the door, and uh, it got the attention of the, the apartment superintendent who came out and said, can I help you? Do you know where the Whitney's are today, she asked. The Whitney's moved out this week, they don't live here anymore. Do you know where they've gone? No, I don't. So she called Mr. Whitney's boss, who said that Mr. Whitney had picked up his last check and said he's not returning to work, and, and he's going to quit. And, and it's at this moment that Linda wept and felt this horrible sense of loss. I don't know if you know what it's like to feel that pain of separation, the pain of losing a child. You might, I know many have, but I know that God knows that pain because God has lost all his children. Somebody came in and conspired to, to steal his children away from him. And not only that, but he came himself, sent Jesus to die in our place. He lost his only begotten son as well. God understands our pain. He walks with us in this earth. He's lived like us. He's died like us, worse than most of us. Can you imagine being deceived like that? Your child stolen out from under you? Jeannie called the adoption people. They said they couldn't help her because the records were sealed and she had signed those papers. Uh, she couldn't afford a, a lawyer. She couldn't afford an investigator. So she, she started calling all the Whitney's she could find and every phone book she could find. She put in ads in the, the, the um, um, classifieds in the newspaper and was just hoping that somebody would know something about her daughter, Linda. And nothing happened. It was a conspiracy. Linda was the victim of a conspiracy. There's been a conspiracy in your life too. The Bible says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. Do you see that? The God of this age. Paul uses that to talk about the devil. The God of this age has blinded their eyes. And he's done that in yours and my life. Someone is trying to keep you from seeing the truth. But there's, there's something about conspiracies. They aren't perfect. They're not foolproof. There's always, a, there's always some hole, some chink in the, in the armor of that conspiracy where light can shine through. And one day, the Bible says that a thief 
on a cross beside Jesus, saw a hole in the conspiracy. He woke up, and for the first time in his life, with blood and sweat and, and, and uh, grime in his eyes, he finally saw clearly. He suddenly saw that the man that he was ruthlessly mocking was, in fact, the Lamb of God. And you've got to understand that this man, Matthew tells us, and the other guy on the, the cross, as well as all the people that were down at the bottom, were mocking Jesus. And, and they were saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. Do you recognize that voice? The man on the cross started to recognize the voice. He started to realize that there is a conspirator that's there at the cross. It's like there's a figure at the foot of Jesus' cross looking up, spurning him, spurring people on to, to taunt him, and, and he's saying, hey, Jesus, is this your big plan? Is this how you plan to take back the planet? Why don't you come down off that cross if you're really the Son of God? If, 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 and, and uh, Jesus probably recognized that voice too because it's a voice that he's heard before. Back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he spent 40 days in the wilderness, and then he was met by an angel, well, at least the devil, masquerading as an angel of light. And this angel, he, he said, if you're the Son of God, make these stones bread. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself off the, the, the temple. If, if. And who's the one that says if? It's the devil. It's Lucifer. And he's trying to get Jesus to quit. He tries to get him to quit. He says, um, if you bow down and worship me, then you don't even have to, to go through all this suffering. Why go to the cross? There's no reason for it. I'll give you the world. Just bow down and worship me. He says, if, and he tempts Jesus to quit. And there at the cross, he's spurring people to say, if you're the son of God, just come down. And he could have. He could have displayed his glory. Why didn't Jesus come down? He didn't come down because of love for you. Because he, know, he knew that the only solution, the only way that he would be worthy to unlock the, those seals and to open up that victory for us was if he passed through the grave. He had to die. And so for love of you and me, he gave his life. I, I don't think he wanted to die. And I know that because... In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said to his father, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't like the idea of the cross, but he chose the cross for you and me. Satan wants to say, don't, don't waste your time. It's not, it's not worth it. You'll never be good enough. And you know what? When you hear that voice of Satan telling you you'll never be good enough, you can just say, you're right. I will never be worthy never be good enough. And, and the devil wants to, he wants to point things out, like, like um, if you do this, then, you know, what will the people at work think? What will your family think? What will, etc. He wants you to think about all the problems that it might cause, the changes that you'll have to make in your life, and he wants you to, to make that the big deal. But believe me, uh, these these um, evil angels, these angels that hang out in the shadows and spur people to ridicule, they still show up in our lives today, just like they did in the life of that 
thief on the cross, just like they did in the life of Jesus when he was on that cross. And why do they want to show up? Why do they pay attention to us? Because they really don't want us to see the truth. They want us to stay deceived and to stay in the lie. They don't want us to see the light because they're scared that the truth is going to come out, that the conspiracy is going to be exposed. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but, and that's the key transition word, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And with that one word, everything changes. At first, you are unworthy. You are worthy only of death, but, and that, that, that but has a critical historical moment, but Jesus didn't come down off the cross, but Jesus stayed there on the cross. And, and how do you get to the but? How do you, how do you get that solution applied to your life? 1 Corinthians 1.8 says that all have sinned, and if you, if you say that you haven't sinned, you're, you're deceiving yourself. You're, you're, you're blinded by the conspiracy of Satan. But in, in 1 John 1.9, the very next verse, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, that's the solution. The wages of sin is death, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it says all unrighteousness. So um, does that include murder? The Bible says that David is somebody who God is is planning on bringing to heaven, right? And and David committed murder. Is it it, um, all unrighteousness except adultery? No, this doesn't doesn't suggest that you can just commit adultery and be fine. Um, But if you've committed adultery... God is still capable of forgiving you. All unrighteousness. It doesn't say everything except drunkenness or everything except stealing or everything except ruined relationships. He says everything is covered. You are unworthy, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and this, is not, this is not something that you can earn because you're not worthy of it. Ephesians 2.8 says, by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. This is not something that we can work at. This is a, a free gift that God wants to give us. And the, the thing that we have to do is simply confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive. Look at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22.17, and, and it, it makes this so beautiful. It says, let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life at a great expense. It doesn't say that, does it? It says, let him take of the water of life freely. Jesus said of the water of life to the woman at the well that if you just ask, I would give you the water of life and you would never thirst again. That's the promise of God. Freely. Moments, a few moments ago, the thief was wrestling with that soldier down there. Now he's up on the cross and he's wrestling with something else. He's wrestling with conviction, just like some of you right now are wrestling with. He cries out, stop it. Don't you see what we're doing? We deserve this. We deserve to die, but he doesn't deserve any of this. He's innocent. And then he speaks nine very important words, very simple, 
but very important words. He says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's such a simple prayer, simple and, and honest, and, and God wants to hear that prayer from you. It doesn't have to be complicated. Just, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Out in the wilderness, Jesus tempted, or Satan tempted Jesus. Just bow down. I'll give you this planet. Why go through that difficult thing? Jesus said that you are worth the effort. You're worth the hardship. And, and so the question that we have to ask is, is there anything keeping us from saying yes to him? Is there anything keeping us from saying, Lord, remember me. I want to be in your kingdom with you too. When you look at the cross, when you look at Jesus' sacrifice, you can't help but see amazing love. And, and such an amazing love that would give everything so that he could be worthy, so that he could give us victory. Look at the cross. And, and when you see the cross, how can you not hate the sin that put him there? And it's our selfishness that nailed him to the cross, our pride that put that crown of thorns on his head, um, our jealousy that stabbed him in the side. It's our sin that put him there, and he died for our sin. When I look at the cross, I hate sin because Jesus is so lovely. Maybe you don't feel like you're good enough for God or good enough for church people. That's a, that's a silly thought, just so you know. There, there ain't no good church people. We're all sinners. I think it's for the very reason that you feel unworthy that John wept when he saw that scroll because he knew he was unworthy too. And John's a good guy. I mean, we named the book after him, but he knew he was unworthy. Linda ran her ad in October 1992. My name is Linda, born to Jeannie and Warren in Omaha. Uh, well, it was November 2nd when her phone rang and uh, an agent on the other end said, Linda, I think, I think that you're going to have a very good Christmas this year. Somebody answered your ad. Can I give her your number? And Jeannie said, or uh, Linda said, yes, uh, you, can, you, can, uh, you can give her my number. And she waited, kind of nail-biting and wringing her hands until that afternoon when the phone rang. And her husband had to, had to put it in her hands so she would answer it because she was so nervous. And she answered it and said, hello? And the, the person on the other line said, hello, is this Linda? Yes. Is, is this my mom? Forty years of living a lie. But the truth can set you free. Mom, I can't believe you saw my ad on the one day that it ran in the paper. And, and Jeannie replied, Linda, the truth is, I've been looking for that ad every moment, every day of your entire life. And the truth is, the same is true for God and you. He has been looking for your response that little Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom statement for your entire life. What reason could anybody possibly have to say no to God? 
I'm going to ask the ushers er, to come forward. I've got a card that I want you to, to look at tonight. It's, a, it's just an opportunity to, to, to talk back to God at this moment. And I'm going to ask the ushers to hand those out really quickly. And we'll talk about it when they're, when they're done. on here. The first one is, I believe that salvation comes only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, if, you've been, if you've been feeling that God is nudging your heart tonight, and you want to just affirm that statement that, that it's by His grace that you want to be saved, and just put a, a check mark there. That's the, Lord, remember me in your kingdom kind of statement. Just put a check mark by that. And I think everybody in this room could make that statement. If, if you've already made that commitment to Christ long before now. That's fine. You can still put your, your, a check mark there. The second statement says, I repent of my sins and accept Jesus as my personal Savior, believing that my sins are forgiven and His gift of eternal life is mine. Tonight, God is saying that He's going to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And if that's something you want, just put a check mark right there. The third line says, I once knew Jesus, but have drifted away. Tonight, I recommit my life to Christ. And maybe you grew up in a church or your family went to church or something, and um, you've had some experience with God in the past, but um, you want to you renew that and say yes in an all-new way. Or maybe you don't feel like your life is where it could be in your walk with God, and you'd like a closer relationship with Him. Put a check mark on that line. And I, I, I really want, I want you to know that I want to pray for you um, this, is, this is for me to know, between you and God and, and, and me. I just want to pray for you. So check that, that uh, box, and, uh, and I'll make a special point of doing that. And the fourth line says, because of my desire to follow Jesus, I'd like to be baptized soon. And just so you know, there's no pressure, but if you're curious about baptism or if you've already decided that you want to make that commitment, just put a check mark beside that, and, um, and we'll talk about that at some point. And, uh, and I, again, I just want to say I'm gonna, I want to pray for you by name. So jot your name down there on the bottom. And, uh, and, and while you do that, while you fill this out, I want to invite DJ to, to sing a special song for you.
You begin with shattered souls, those hiding in their shame, and fashion from their brokenness a story filled with grace, a story filled with grace. Redeemer, you take all that's lost and turn it into gain. So why am I amazed to find you reached this broken life of mine? You make all things new. That's what you do. To all who feel so far away, afraid to see your face, you silence every trembling word with a strong embrace, with your strong embrace. Redeemer, you take all that's lost and turn it into gain. So why am I amazed to find you reached this broken if you could pick them up from the back and bring them up to me. Um, and just, uh, they're going to come around, uh, turn that thing upside down. Nobody needs to see that but you, or, but you and me and God. So turn it upside down and, and they'll pick it up in the little baskets there. 
I'm going to do something um, a little different tonight. I want to pray for you, uh, like genuinely pray for you. And so I'm going to invite you to come up here with me. I don't know if you've ever felt awkward with an, an altar call before. I have. I understand how that's, how that's like, but I don't want there to be any pressure. No, like, like you should come forward, and if you don't, then there's a problem. No, nothing like that. But if you find yourself having said yes to Jesus tonight, maybe for the first time, or maybe feeling like you just can't say yes because he's, you're just not worthy, and, uh, and, or, or maybe you've uh, found yourself in a situation where um, there's something that you need, some burden that you have, and you'd, you'd like somebody to pray for you, um, then I'd like to invite you to come forward and uh, just hang out with me, um, and I'll pray for you. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, my, my team and, and I will, will uh, spend some time praying with you as well. Um, but come forward and, and pray with me. Maybe there's some a child of yours that you have a burden for, um, come forward and we'll pray together. Um, I, I really think that the, this is a, this group of people isn't, we're not just uh, strangers, we're part of a family. And uh, sometimes families, they sit around tables and they, they hang out on chairs in a living room and it's usually in more like a circle. Like there's a, there's a, a comfortable environment there and it's okay if you don't want to, there's no pressure. But if you want to be, you want some, some prayer time and some focus of, on that, then please come forward. Thank you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm just so excited about your plan. You have everything in place to save us, to conquer evil, and to, to solve the problem of our unworthiness. You gave us your whole, you gave us all of heaven so that we can be with you. It's the one main focus of the Bible, the whole point that you want to be re reunited with us. And these, these precious people that have come forward tonight, that have said yes to you today, um, these are the ones that you're coming back for. These are the ones that, that you are saying, you are mine, and I've cleansed you from all unrighteousness. And I pray that you would give them your peace and that you draw them to you every day of their lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Stay here for just a moment. I just want to say um, real quick, um, well, go to the, la the, the, the next slide.